And I'm Dr. Adam Jirachi. And you are listening to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. Pack your suntan lotion as Donna continues her reading of Chapter 6, Muscle Bustle, of her autobiography, Love's a Secret Weapon. Donna's the girl in the bikini, one piece of course, as per her contract with Dr. Pepper, in Bikini Beach and Pajama Party. Go, Donna. 1964 proved to be a productive year. Two more beach party movies were made. The first was Bikini Beach. According to my diary, at noon on April 17th, I attended a cast luncheon given by AIP at the Tale of the Cock on La Cienica Boulevard, commonly known as L.A.'s Restaurant Row. At 2 p.m. that same day, I then went into Gold Star Studios, very familiar to me, to record my song for the movie, Love's a Secret Weapon, written by Jerry Steiner and Guy Hemrick. I can only assume that the choice to record at Gold Star Studios for AIP was due to Brian Wilson recording the track and background vocals for Muscle Bustle there. There was such a unique sound Phil Spector created that wall of sound at Gold Star, and everyone on the West Coast wanted to emulate that rich, full Rock beat. record the songs in the film so that the final outcome would be as good as possible. Don't forget, we had elements that couldn't be controlled, such as a plane flying by, or a car driving past, even seagulls. You would do take after take after take if you had to worry about the sound, even on set with so many people milling around. Lip syncing is quite a tedious process if you're not singing with yourself. Fortunately, I always sang with myself and consequently literally performed the tune live as I was acting to make it appear that the performance you see is authentic. I also had to do that in Dr. Pepper commercials with the jingle because that was all pre-recorded as well, and TV shows like American Bandstand and 
actually the very last show of Shindig. For my scene in the movie, I needed a bathing suit. While the bikini gave birth to the atomic age, my contractual agreement with Dr. Pepper did not allow me to expose my navel. Many years later, an interviewer asked W.W. Foots Clements, the new CEO of Dr. Pepper, who was really a John Wayne Southern gentleman character, the W.W. stands for Woodrow Wilson, how much of a risk was it making a young female in America so significant that she would be identified with the image of the company and vice versa? Foots replied, quote, I think there's always a risk when you tie yourself to anybody, and particularly someone who is in the public, that they may do some things that would not create the kind of image you want, and those are the things that you try to find out before you make the determination. But it's like any other thing in life. There's always a risk, and you have to weigh the risk against the possible and potential benefits, and that's what was done. Fortunately, in Donna's case, I think the right decision was made by the company and the agencies. More than a decade before the beginning of the Beach Party movies, Bridget Bardot is becoming a household name in The Girl in the Bikini. Annette and I, and even Sally Field a little later in Gidget, couldn't show our navels. My mother and I went to the shopping center that was closest to us in Culver City, called Culver Center, across the street from MGM Studios, now Sony. You could enter from two main boulevards, and there was a street down the middle between the strips of shops. That was pre-mall. My favorite store was always Leeds Shoe Store. I'm a shoe addict. I was when I was young, and I still am today. We went to J.C. Penney, the main department store there, to look for a bathing suit, but to no avail. Walking past several other stores, we came to a little hole in the wall that was selling wholesale bathing suits. My mother was very price conscious, and since this was coming out of our pocket, at least initially, she only wanted to pay a very rock-bottom price. The wholesale house really provided that environment, which inadvertently created a bit of a harmony between my mother and me. While she was focused on the price, I was focused on the style, and we came together as a harmonious solution. This meant a lot to me. Anything to reduce stress between my mother and I was a blessing. I found the little pleated two-piece yellow and white bathing suit. I seemed to always gravitate toward yellow when I was a performer. A few of the dresses that I have survived and still in my closet are yellow. Not just yellow, they're canary yellow. So was this bathing suit. The pleated skirt gave it a very ingenue effect that I think has survived to this day. Just by accident, I fell into a timeless bathing suit costume for this film. I wish I still had the suit, but I think my mom sold it in a garage sale. For my song, we were shooting out on the beach, and I was shivering. Of course, scenes designed to be shown in summer are inevitably shot in winter, and so actresses and models must hide their goosebumps while wearing bikinis. It scared me when I walked out to join the group of beach boys and girls because there was kind of a no-man's land between where the crew and where the actual scene was. Normally, I was always more or less in a huddle with the crew and my chaperone, my dad. Suddenly, 
I entered this little bit of freedom, and it scared me. But then, when I joined the group, I felt less threatened by them than I did by my usual authority figures. In fact, I felt welcomed. When the music started, and I started to sing along with it, and dance in the sand, <laughs> I began to feel no threat at all. My instincts of being abandoned were always tempered by my singing. This was one of those rare occasions where I really felt a part of something, some social connection that could be fun and where I could relax a little bit without someone always breathing down my neck. It's hard dancing in the sand, really hard. <laughs> I knew I had to do a few takes, and that takes a lot of energy, which got captured in the film, and that's a plus. While my big scene was filmed at Coral Beach in Malibu, I spent a lot of time at Columbia Ranch where other scenes were filmed. Even when I wasn't filming, I was required by Dr. Pepper to be on set, and so there was a lot of waiting around in case there was any other opportunity for product placement. In Bikini Beach, Frankie and Annette were again the stars, as well as the ensemble cast members, including the characters Big Drag, played by Don Rickles, and Harvey Lumbeck as Eric Von Zipper. The film was written by Bill Asher, Leo Townsend, and Mr. Dillon. A little tidbit surfaced while my collaborator, Dr. Adam Garache, and I were thinking about Bikini Beach. And why in the world Frankie Avalon would play a dual role that emulated a Brit? In Bill Asher's own words, James Nicholson had wanted the Beatles to be in the next film, and so Bill had written the script. After appearing on the Ed Sullivan show, however, the agents told Bill, Oh, no, we can't give them away for what you want to pay for them. He then had to rewrite the script to make it about one guy, not four. Added to the cast was Martha Heyer, who appeared with Audrey Hepburn in her role as Sabrina. Martha's most significant role came as the love interest of Frank Sinatra in Some Came Running. She received a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, which was impressive. Meredith McRae, daughter of Gordon and Sheila McRae of Broadway musical fame, came on board. She was someone I could relate to. And I could also relate to Bobby Shaw, a beautiful blonde who played a bit part in the films with the masterful Buster Keaton. She had a very kind personality. They both did. That gave them a softness that felt in harmony with my own. Little Stevie Wonder was back again, so that his participation musically lifted the film to a higher vibe than just pure slapstick and teen love. He cast his magic spell singing, happy feeling, dance and shout. Another surprise was Keenan Wynn, an actor of great prestige. He created a higher plane of professionalism. His son Ned was cast as an extra, a beach boy. Another son of Hollywood royalty was Jody McRae, son of Joel McRae and Francis D., a little man named Janos Prohaska showed up in a chimpanzee suit. Monkey Man had a significant role in the movie. Off camera, he was full of mischief, as the suit became his alter ego. 
He took his chimpanzee side quite seriously by mildly harassing all the surfer girls. He'd show up behind a girl and start jumping up and down, making chimp noises, and generally wouldn't stop until someone was thoroughly annoyed. Again, I was spared, thank goodness. He approached me one day, but saw my dad nearby and decided to put his full attention on a more vulnerable victim. It was all in good fun, of course. Janos was among the best animal actors in the business. Don Rickles, Harvey Lembeck, Buddy Hackett were the comedy club element of the films. I never got close enough to actually hear their conversation, but I sensed that I could be a target for their humor in a harsh way. With my dad always a few feet away from me, I never had an encounter. I did observe them, though. Each of their faces were so unique, especially Buddy Hackett's. I interpreted the gravelly laughter that could be heard from their intimate circle as burlesque humor, but I was strictly a voyeur. There were generally a lot of extras milling around, beach boys, beach girls, and muscle men. These three genius comics gravitated to each other. It was an atmosphere of exclusivity. Of course, the director, Bill Asher, and his team had their tier. A parade of beach bunnies would file in and out of Bill Asher's trailer, coming in with their cheeks normal and coming out with their cheeks flushed from their frolics. Jim Nicholson, the producer, hung around the set a lot. One of the cast members was his girlfriend, Susan Hart. In my mind, there was an agenda here. Among the various strata and social groups amongst the cast and crew, I remained separate due to my relationship with Dr. Pepper or my dad always being close by. In the next film of that year, Pajama Party, Annette returned to star this time with Tommy Kirk from Old Yeller fame. Actress Elsa Lanchester played a comedic role alongside character actor Jesse White as Jay Sinister Hulk. I had issues of feeling good about what I was doing, so keeping company with veterans of show business helped to boost my self-esteem a little. A surprise visit from Tony Basil as a pajama girl was my introduction to a great dancer and choreographer. I would later work with her on Shindig. My scene came up when we were on location at Paradise Cove. Traveling north on PCH past Malibu, you turn left on a narrow road past a trailer park. An opening reveals a small stretch of white sands beach and a small pier. The camera crew set up for the entire day. My call was very early. I woke up at 4.30 that morning, a bit earlier than my usual time of around 5, because I had a 6.30 makeup call, and the weather predicted a perfect day for outdoor shooting, so we had to get started filming at 8 a.m. The song I sang at Pajama Party was Among the Young. The music was pre-recorded by Al Sims, the music director, and my song was again written by Jerry Steiner and Guy Hemrick, a very sweet guy who also played an extra in the film. These movies were on a tight budget of a few hundred thousand dollars, so I, for one, only received union wages. This was a bonus after my base guarantee pay from Dr. Pepper, but I never saw a penny of it. Generally, shooting outside is best in the mornings and afternoons. 
When the sun is too high, it causes a glare in the lighting for the camera. The cinematographer was David Crosby's father, Floyd. I recall David visiting the set and hearing his name. He was a young teenager at the time, curious about what movies his father was working on. My song was arranged as an homage in my own way to pay tribute to my idol, Elvis Presley. I sang my arrangement to Al Sims, who said, Yeah, let's do it that way. We sped it up at the end, much the way of Elvis's rendition of his Vegas performances, and slowed it back down for a dramatic ending. Girls in bikinis steal the show Yeah, walking down the beach to and fro It's summertime, we have a ball We live it up, yeah, till the fall Cause that's the way it's done Among the young Among the young That's the way it's done Among the very young That's the way it's done Among the very young That's the way it's done Among the young Cause that's the way That's the way it's done Among the young We took take after take all day except for a lunch break. By the end of the day, no amount of suntan oil could prevent how burnt my skin was. It's part of the job, part of the experience, and now part of the memory. I chose a one-piece red bathing suit again, keeping in mind the claws in my Dr. Pepper contract. Just showing my legs and back were actually quite enough for me to deal with, so I never felt like I wanted to rebel and go against the rules. Annette chose a one piece as well, but it had a bottom piece and a mesh middle that connected to her top. She had to uphold her proper image from Disney, so this was a bit risky. Clearly, her skin showed through the fishnet before her waistline, just a peek at her belly button. Of course, she was 21 years old at the time, which was miles away from my age of 17, still legally a minor. While Maury always lurking around, and sending me constant messages of how I needed protection, I felt safe in my choice of a solid one-piece suit. No one ever came on to me on the set. It was understandable that with my dad nearby, I was not fair game, and everyone knew I was a Dr. Pepper girl, usually supervised by a rep from the company. While I'm on the subject, I was looking through a book called Dr. Pepper, King of Beverages, written by Harry Ellis, one of the executives at Dr. Pepper in the 60s. This is an account of the Dr. Pepper history for almost 100 years. Turning to page 218 of my copy, I found a letter in an envelope between the pages, written by the author, dated July 7, 1982. Dear Donna, What a pleasure it was to talk to you yesterday on the phone. You reminded me of so many exciting and wonderful events. I could write a book about all the things we've done and the places we've been. What I remember most was that you were such an attractive gal and I felt the great responsibility of protecting you from all the wags that made passes at you. What burned me up the most were all the old geezers that took shots at you. Sincerely, Harry Ellis. 
Mr. Ellis had contacted me in 1982 to be part of a special event for Dr. Pepper, and this was in response. He also signed the book to me, to Donna Lauren, with deep gratitude for your loving friendship, Harry Ellis. In Pajama Party, I was elevated to the status of a few speaking lines as well as a song. My scene giving advice to Annette by the pool was a real thrill, although... As part of the scene, she was looking away from me the whole time. She didn't want to hear my advice. <laughs> Soon after that, a crazy pool scene followed. Thank goodness I was allowed to leave in time to miss being thrown into the pool. I wasn't a swimmer. <laughs> That's my little secret. Didn't learn how to swim, really, till I was about 30, and never been totally comfortable because I never learned how to swim properly. But anyway, I love, love the ocean. I adapted to it when I moved to Hawaii. I was, however, told to wear a scantily clad, for me, baby doll nightie in another scene I shared with Annette, a far cry from my usual flannel pajamas in my private life. Dr. Pepper notified us, that is my mother and dad, of a trip to New York to shoot a calendar of me in four seasons of costumes. Packing me up to go away again only one day after my 17th birthday, I could tell my mother was jealous of the attention I was getting, not only from my blossoming career, but also from the vigilant supervision of Maury. We were booked to stay at the Summit Hotel at Lexington Avenue and 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan. My wake-up calls came early. Dr. Pepper was furnishing me with wardrobe, hair, and makeup. I was not familiar with the East Coast City, and neither was Maury. Being whisked away in a limo early in the morning to a hair salon gave me a bird's-eye view of skyscrapers I had only seen in movies like King Kong. My hair was trimmed to a very traditional length, most common for a French model, right at the neck and jawline after it was curled under barely long enough for a flip. I had four scenes to photograph for the calendar. Each day, I would start out by getting my hair washed and styled according to the scene. One was where I would be lying on a shag rug listening to a 45 RPM record. Another was talking on a princess phone. A very cute white poodle was added to the third scene where I'm listening to my radio. And the big finale was getting ready for the prom. At this stage of my career, I had been experimenting with hair and makeup for my distinct look. I directed the hairstylist as best I could, but of course they were professionals, so I really let them do their work. I was okay with the results, but as you see the progression in further Dr. Pepper calendars, they were more consistent with my performances I did on TV and personal appearances. I learned how to do my own hair and makeup, which gave me a bit of empowerment. I recall the photographer using a portrait camera in which I had to freeze for several seconds to help the camera with its exposure. Large, heavy plates and metal frames were used in this process to capture my images. It was thrilling for me to be in New York. It was extra thrilling for me to be treated as a celebrity. I did my work, and I was rewarded. John Simmons, an executive from Dr. Pepper headquarters in Dallas, came to witness the photographing of the new 1964-65 calendar. 
I was informed that a special night out was arranged for me and, of course, my dad. A new hit play on Broadway called Funny Girl, starring a newcomer called Barbara Streisand, would be my night out on the town. I wore the white gown given to me for the prom scene in the calendar. I also received a fur wrap from my parents upon my request before I left for New York. It was white fox. Long white gloves completed my ensemble with my up hairdo. Essentially, when we wrapped shooting the prom scene, I left there as is to go to the theater. Mr. Simmons and Maury escorted me to our front row center seats. There I sat mesmerized for over two hours, listening and watching Barbara Streisand performing in her role as Fanny Bryce. As I watched her sing, hands outstretched as though every note coming from the core of her being was also coming out through the tips of her very long fingers and fingernails, I felt admiration, camaraderie, and contradiction. She was not a beauty by American standards, as, as I was judged, yet her beauty emanated from her soul and permeated her every move and note she sang. I became an instant fan. She touched my heart like no other singer had. It was the highlight of my young life to have been privileged to be in her presence during the dawning of her superlative career. On May 13th, I left for Cincinnati for a preview and public appearance for Muscle Beach Party, and three days later, we went straight from there to New York for a teenage fashion show for Chuck Laufer and Teen Magazine. They called for a rehearsal at Carnegie Hall before the big night at the Barbizon Plaza. There was so much material to go through because the show was like a little Broadway show with fashion. I had to learn songs that were original tunes for the show and I had several costume changes. It was an experience of a lifetime. I was the star of this show, and I literally experienced having to learn songs on the spot, perform them, do costume changes spontaneously, effortlessly, and complete this long, long engagement. My first year working for Dr. Pepper opened my eyes to the corporate world. Men in suits all having titles and sitting around big tables at board meetings. It also opened my eyes to the racial climate at the time and segregation, particularly in the South, where I spent much of my time for Dr. Pepper. I did know how it felt to be different. In grammar school, the predominant race and religion fit the WASP identity. I remember hearing some kids say, behind my back, referring to me being Jewish, where are your green horns? However, coming from a middle-class Southern California environment, which was more liberal than middle America, it didn't prepare me for all the division I encountered. The initial exposure to segregation for me was when I was asked to sing in a board meeting in the Dallas headquarters. It was called for 7 a.m. I arrived in full dress for this occasion, suit, hat, gloves, hair, and makeup. A minister was leading the morning prayers as I entered. About a dozen men were seated around a long board meeting table. At the helm, CEO Wesby Parker. By his side was W.W. W. Foots Clements, 
a very familiar face, was also there, John Simmons, Director of Advertising, and Harry Ellis. It felt odd being 16 years old and in a room full of men who could be my father or grandfather. I was their new darling and was already proving to be good for their business. The new campaign featuring me was already showing profits. In a weird way, they were inducting me into their world, being invited into the men's club. Not just the men's club, the Southern Gentlemen's Club. They had one expectation. Sing for us. Sing I did. A cappella. The song I chose, this could be the start of something big, written by Steve Allen. And that was met by a roaring applause. After the meeting was over, I asked to use the ladies' room. I was led downstairs to a shocking realization. Signs on the door read, For colored ladies only. For white ladies only. Same for men. Outside were drinking fountains labeled, For coloreds only. For whites only. As appalling as this was, I refrained from showing the shocked feeling inside me. I couldn't even share this with my dad because, even though we were of Jewish descent, he and my mother were always uncomfortable when any situation or anything was unfamiliar, even when it came to issues of race. I never shared their belief, but I grew up tolerating it. How ironic was it to have the opportunity of a lifetime await me in this corporate world that provided my family with financial security and under the same roof be faced with disturbing issues of civil rights. My awareness is that we are all one. As the spokesperson for Dr. Pepper, I had the opportunity to cross those racially charged barriers on behalf of the company to promote their product and connect with everyone, people of all races, all ages, all genders. We connected with our hearts. Donna, you talk about being on the beach movie sets, particularly during Love's a Secret Weapon, your performance of Love's a Secret Weapon, which of course is the name of our podcast and our, our theme music as well. And, and in particular, when discussing filming out on the beach for that song, that you experienced a bit of fear because you were kind of left alone for a while. Like usually you were kind of in this huddle with either the crew or Maury, your adopted dad. But then, you know, for a minute or so, you were kind of on your own and there was that fear before you joined the group and you were much more at ease. Was this one of those few occasions when you could have, I guess, some interaction with your castmates um, where, you know, you weren't kind of being chaperoned um, so closely by your dad? Interaction wasn't exactly the way that it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but really, I'll just, from, I, I kind of remember exactly the feeling and the situation yeah because um it was along the coast of malibu mm. where um there was no formal parking area we had to park along the highway and climb mm. down and um so all that equipment cameras and you know the lighting and all that mm. had to be carted down and so that was all kind of stationed closest to the highway down mm. below on the sand so was you know uh, kind of where the makeup hair food all that kind of stuff was laid out and uh, for the cast and mm. crew but the ocean was probably 
more than a hundred feet west. So yeah. <laughs> so so basically, what they did was they built um, a kind of a, a ramp mm. for the camera to be rolled out onto, and right. Maury or and the Dr Pepper rep were left mm. along with you know where everyone was stationed mm. Mm. and then the um action was closest to the ocean so i i had never really experienced that distance you know it sounds mm. weird but um <laughs> on set or even on other beach scenes beach was more accessible to the parking area so that the crew and the cast wasn't so separated at, when right, the filming yeah. happened. Mm. And so Maury was, who knows, you know, he was probably 20 feet away from me at all times. Um, but, but <laughs> it just felt like uh, kind of going through the rabbit hole when you, you know, w when I started walking out toward where the, the camera just, you know, kept moving, 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 moving. And, mm. the, and, and then there was a volleyball uh, net and, and it, all of that was closest to the ocean. Mm. And so all, everyone was separated, you know, I, I, suddenly it's like I had to be in front of the camera and the cast had to be in front of the camera. Mm. And, and yeah, it was freaking me out because I felt like, uh, you know, my dad was getting smaller and smaller in the distance. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it was initially scary. But, but once, once I, you know, everyone was always about five or ten years older than me. Yeah. And, um, and they had the freedom to do, you know, whatever mm. uh, while they were working. And they didn't have a serious role to play except for me and Frankie and Annette and, you know, the mm. essential people. So, yeah. um, even, even, you know, Tony Basil and Mike Nader, you know, the Tony Basil definitely was part of the choreography, but once she was in the group, you know, she was kind of one of the gang and she, she was wasn't treated girls, that, yeah. yeah, she wasn't treated that special at that point either. Yeah, but mm. because of my role with Dr. Pepper and you know, and then my dad, um, and being a minor, uh, just separated me out, and so I just never really, uh, even without socializing in a in a regular normal way, um, yeah. you know, I didn't feel like you know anyone was gonna bully me or look at me or you know scrutinize me or. Um, make me feel uncomfortable i i just fit fit right in yeah and so yeah. that that was the feeling and that was the circumstance and then of course they start the music and the and the mm. music is played very loud the mm. ocean is roaring you know <laughs> the wind is blowing um and uh and and so i'm i'm singing live yeah. to you know to the recording and dancing in the sand. And dancing and, in the sand, I was going to say, which I can't imagine is a particularly easy thing to do while looking so graceful <laughs> and unflappable. Well, you know how it is if you ever try to run on the sand. 
oh, I, I, uh, it's, it's near impossible. When I take Lucy for a walk, you know, she can, she can kind of do it and I'm kind of straggling behind. It's kind of like, go on without me. I'm just dead weight, you know. But... <laughs> we'll try to do the pony in the sand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the Watusi or the, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so that was, that's actually, that's my visual and that's my mm. experience. And, um, you know, the, the, the whole, uh, all the beach bunnies and the beach boys, and, uh, you know, it, all the, the cast members were um, just very compatible. That's all I can mm. say. And, and very embracing. So it just made me feel like, you know, okay, I'm, I'm cool. And I don't need my dad, you know, just a shoulder away, you know, to yeah. protect me. Yeah. And so. And that's, a, and that's, I guess, the thing, isn't it? That like you say in the reading, you know, there were kind of naturally those, uh, while, you, while you're suggesting that everyone was very welcoming, there were those kind of tears within the cast. So there was perhaps the beach girls and boys, many of them, um, you know, who were actual surfers and, and that's where they, where they were cast from and where they, they came from. And, and then, of course, there were kind of, the, you know, the stars, the people like Frankie and Nett and John Ashley and, and Debbie Wally and, and uh, Jody McRae and, and people like that, um, you know, and then, of course, there were the veterans, which you talk about, which, um, you know, must have been a, a, a pretty interesting perspective to sort of watch these, these you know, kind of these legends on, on set, you know, people like um, Don Rickles and Buddy Hackett. <laughs> I mean, just the thought of that is just, you know, Vincent Price chasing uh, Bobby Shaw, you know, around. <laughs> Around, he, I should say, Buster for Keaton. Film. Buster <laughs> Keaton. Oh God, I've done that again, haven't I? Buster <laughs> Keaton. Buster Keaton, who's yeah. probably more uh, iconic in, in his own way than Vincent Price, but I, mm. I, I definitely Vincent Price was was more of the horror for horror film. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but um, and as you said, you know, you kind of saw them sort of holding holding court, um, you know, on set. But they again, they didn't, you know, so called mess with you or, or or try to take the Mickey out of you. And I guess that's perhaps because you were always so closely chaperoned. You know, when you think about the um, social abilities of, or so, how, how do you say that the um, so how do you say that the, the... Uh, socialization. Yeah, yeah. Of the various tiers of of either extras or, you know, a bit part players or Mm. co-stars or the stars. Um, Everyone has their own habits, you know. Um, When Stevie Wonder was on set, you Mm. know, Mm. he was a young man, but I don't remember him having a chaperone. I don't, you know, I don't recall seeing an adult with him, but I I do recall him having his own small dressing room with mm. um like a little uh typewriter that was braille mm. 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 and you know and that he was probably doing his studies in between takes he probably was yeah and Absolutely. you know he was young he was maybe 12 or 13 at the time maybe even yeah i would say in the very beginning of his career and um and then there would be uh the kind of the character actors like fred clark um mm, mm. that that you know that tier of of um character actors and they they would be in their trailers uh in their dressing rooms just maybe reading and resting because that's you know there's a lot of loose time on a set mm, for and, sure. <laughs> you know that's very famous for 
for actors showing up and they know that it's going to be a 14 plus hour day. Mm. Um, and they, uh, a lot of waiting around. Yeah. So they bring their reading material or whatever they do, uh, and to have their own privacy. And, um, and then, you know, it's really good when you're busy on set because then you always feel like you have a purpose. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, but it was always interesting, you know, to see how different people, um, socialized, you know, like Mm. Bobby Shaw, who, and Meredith McRae, I found to be very friendly, very compassionate and kind of big sisterly with me. Mm. Mm. uh, Bobby Shaw is still to this day, you know, very, very kind and, and considerate and concerned about me and always, you know, uh, communicating and, and very lovely whenever I see her. Fantastic. Yeah, and certainly she's, we should say, you know, she's quite a revered acting coach now. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, for sure. And uh, when, when, you, when you get to uh, even Annette and Frankie, you know, even though they were the stars, uh, mm. they, they still had their, their times when there were sets that needed to be polished up and, you know, the timing. And it, everyone has their own kind of um, courtesy you know, when mm. someone is when someone is waiting to do their part and, and others are are uh, actively doing their. And of course, if you've got somebody like Don Rickles, you know, on set, if everyone wants to hear him, no matter what, he yeah. has so much charisma. Absolutely. And I spoke to a, <laughs> uh, an actor, Jonathan Daly, who, you know, worked with him uh, later on in, in, um, in a TV series. And, and um, he was kind of saying with Don Rickles, you had to be, you had to be kind of on or quick as a whip because he was just, you know, every minute of every day, he was just so quick. And, you know, you had to just be able to keep up with him. Um, well, well, that's so typical. Your... That's so typical mm. of comedians. You know, the, comedians are such a rare breed. Um, the ones that I've been in, 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 you know, close contact Mm. with, that's just who they are. Yeah. Yeah. If you can imagine, if you can imagine living with, you know, I mean, I'm sure that they're, you know, Don Rickles was a dear man. I know that he was very sincere and very, Mm. you know, kind and kind of almost remorseful uh, for saying things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If he thought he hurt somebody's feelings, you know, and of course he, he, you did that for a living. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the the primary comedians were Buddy Hackett, Harvey Lembeck, mm. and mm. and Don Rickles. Those those were the primaries that were usually on set or you know somewhere involved in the beach party movies that I was involved. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and they did stick together. They were they had their own language and their own kind of uh, history as comedians, Mm. where they came up from, you know, what they had to endure, how they became who they are. And um, that, that was just, that was just fascinating. And actually I would say Buster Keaton, who was Mm. from a totally different era uh, Mm. was more of a loner than, you know, he didn't, I, I never saw him socialize with anyone. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Of course, that might have come from maybe his silent movie days. Yeah. (laughs) 
couldn't break the fourth wall. So that was just kind of the end of it. But I mean, it's, <laughs> it's amazing to think. Of, and yeah, of course, you know, and even Harvey Lembeck, who, who was more of a you know, contemporary at that time, but just that iconic character of Eric Von Zipper. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I just laughed just picturing him. Yeah. Um, you know, and certainly, and then there were, you know, there were other people, of course, like, you know, Candy Johnson's in, in, in your song, sort of, you know, dancing away. Um, you, you know, there's, there's no other way to explain her other than, you know, uh, Energizer Bunny, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, and, and of course, um, you know, if we, if we go back to those, uh, you know, those, um, Songs and I must say, with Love's a Secret Weapon, that's you know, often in the beach party films, many people think of oh, it only hurts when I cry from Beach Blanket Bingo, which we will talk about in a in a subsequent episode, um, because you do have um, a chapter pertaining uh, to that. But I think a lot of people always do talk about Love's a Secret Weapon, the that performance as being one of their favorites, and and I do wonder if if you know some of that sort of spontaneity of what was going on. Um, or the, the situation you were put into on set regarding that kind of resulted in a, in a, in a very sort of um, mm. unique performance. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a good point, Adam. Yeah. Well, it started in the studio yes. with, uh, yes. with the songwriters. And, um, and I, I think th- I stylized the song because it wasn't written to have the chorus sung the way that I did. And mm. so, mm. um, you know, that was, that was, it's always fun, you know, and you can kind of make something your own. Absolutely. And yeah. So I sure. think it started there. And then I think, you know, the cast and the cameraman and the director uh, were enjoying the experience. You know, we were all enjoying it. So it was a collective, mm. I think. Were the, were the songwriters Jerry Steiner and Guy yes. Hemrick um, about, I mean, I know Guy Hemrick, of course, had some sort of scenes as one of the Beach Boys, um, sort of in the background and so on, but were they on set quite regularly? Uh, Guy was, yes. And I presume you, of course, worked with Al Sims, um, the oh, music yeah. uh, director as well, but would that have been more in the actual sort of uh, studio or? Yes, definitely. But he was always yeah. on set. And then, and then, of course, you know, we you, you're talking about this idea of kind of a- adding something to your own performance, you know, making it unique and making it your own, you know, from what was what was already in the song. But that also comes across in Among the Young when you kind of, um, uh, you know, do something particularly at the end. So tell me about that, where, <laughs> where you sort of got the inspiration for your sort of finale. Yeah, of the song. I, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Elvis, and I used to love mm. the way that he would change his tempos and make it more dramatic you know mm. at the end of his songs mm. so uh, that was kind of my homage to to Elvis you know just breaking it down and speeding it up toward the end so um that was basically it it mm. was a mood changer yeah <laughs> and of course that was shot at Paradise Cove which is mm. um an extraordinarily special beach actually you know what mm. The little house in beaches, you know, yes. uh, is yeah, off to one side. Mm. There's like a little pier there. And then off to one side on a little bluff is that house um, that Beaches was filmed in. But it, And it's Paradise Cove is a very small beach, but it has a lovely entrance, which makes it quite private. And, um, and a parking lot that's level with the sand. So it makes it very mm. accessible. And the ocean there is very calm. So they set up that stage there and um, made it 
quite easy, you know, to access it and everything. And, um, you know, I guess the only thing is, is that when we were, when we were shooting it, it was, it was full sun all day. And uh, for mm. some reason they just kept shooting. I and mean, a lot of times when you're doing external shots, um, the peak of the day is not that friendly to the camera. So yeah. they love shooting yeah. in the morning and they love shooting in the afternoon. Um, mm. But they mm. just kept shooting. And I just remember mm. I, I, I my skin, <laughs> I was completely <laughs> fried by the end of the day. I can imagine because I, and of course, you know, filming something like that, um, you know, would, would take a fair amount of time. Um, I imagine that you're on set for quite a while to do one of those that numbers. I remember was pretty much all day. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, you know, it's funny, you talk about Paradise Cove and, and, um, you know, first of all, I, I, you know, we should tell the listeners that, uh, you know, a few years ago, um, you published a sort of pictorial um, autobiography or, or, or memoir. And there are some wonderful pictures, you know, in colour from those beach movies at those particular mm-hmm. beaches um, that are that are really great candid ones that your that your adopted dad Maury uh, mm-hmm. photographed. But also, I remember when when I was in Los Angeles visiting you back um, in 2011, we visited some of those beaches because at the time we weren't going to. Um, what had happened is I was supposed to, I think, leave that day, and then there was some sort of delay with flights, right. <laughs> kind of across the board. And so we thought, well, what are we going to do with this extra day? And so we got on the Pacific Coast Highway um, and stopped past places like Paradise Cove and Leo Carrillo Beach um, from Beach Blanket Bingo, um, you know, with those iconic yes. rocks. Sycamore um, Cove. And, and yes, that's right. And I think even Zuma yes. Beach we, we, uh, we stopped mm-hmm. past as well. Um, so, yeah, the chance to see some of those in, in person um, was pretty spectacular because they are, I mean, I come you know, from Australia where we have spectacular beaches, but those are spectacular Yeah, Malibu, beaches. certainly. I mean, everywhere in the world, wherever you go, there's a particular energy. Um, but, yeah, mm. Malibu is one of those special places. And certainly at at certain times in your life, you know, even after this, of course, um, you sort of lived close enough to those areas that they were a part of your life, um, you know, for quite a few years, those beaches. Well, yeah, I mean, I was raised two two miles away from the ocean in Mar Vista. Mm. And and then that was until I was 21. And then um, I've always lived near the beach. uh, And then... Mm probably in the mid 80s I actually lived on the ocean in Malibu at Broad Beach which is Mm. near the Ventura County line Mm. and um that was that was pretty incredible and and uh, you know but I've always yeah and then in Hawaii I lived next to the ocean and you know it's it's a it's a special experience although sometimes when those waves start crashing at night, <laughs> mm-hmm. it can it can give a girl nightmares. I have to say, <laughs> absolutely, I can imagine. And and um, you know, if we if we sort of go back to um, you know, certainly you know, shooting on the beach, and then some of the scenes, of course, were at the at the Columbia Ranch for the films as as well. Particularly, um, you know, your pool scene with with Annette um, and that's a very iconic pool that I think you can probably spy that in all sorts of Columbia, you know, TV series of the sixties, things like Bewitched and I Dream of Genie always sort of filmed around that. 
um, around that pool. Um, but, of course, the director of the films was uh, Bill Asher, William Asher, um, who was, of course, a you know, legendary TV producer. You know, I love Lucy and Bewitched and, and things like that. But you, you kind of have a particular image of Bill Asher on set, um, which is it, it kind of interesting. Mm, yes. Well, you know, mm. bless his soul, you know, rest in peace. Mm. Um, I guess it's pretty typical of Hollywood and it has its reputation. Mm. Um, but since I was always kind of separated from that whole scene, mm. uh, I got to observe uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> him having a, a dressing room trailer on set and um, and mm. the beach bunnies would, from what I observed, um, kind of parade, mm. not all of them, but some of them would parade into his trailer and, you know, they'd come out with their ponytails a little disheveled and their cheeks all flushed and <laughs> yeah. So, um, that's that's very that's Hollywood. I, I like that's, that. that's Hollywood. Yep. And I, I'm sure he would have been the first to admit that he was, you know, he was perhaps a bit of a, uh, we'll call it a ladies' man, you know, back um, back then. Interestingly, because um, we we have a couple of quotes from Bill Asher in the in the, the reading, um, you know, the first regarding the the whole idea of um, the that the Beatles were originally going to potentially be in mm-hmm. one of the mm-hmm. films. And uh, and the film being a Bikini Beach, of course, and and then that was right around the time when they became very popular, um, you know, kind of exploded in the US thanks to the Ed Sullivan Show, and all of a sudden they weren't going to be within the price range, which explains why then Frankie kind of plays this this dual mm-hmm. character um, of of obviously Frankie, but also the potato bug, um, the British. <laughs> a different insect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a different insect, absolutely. But, um, yeah, the other thing I sort of found interesting just in sort of researching some of this is that Bill Asher was actually relatively close to to John Kennedy, um, who, who, of course, in our last, uh, in one of our previous episodes, we spoke about your experience of being in Dallas at the time, but he was actually, uh, you know, good friends with him and actually produced the um, the birthday uh, celebration where, you know, Marilyn Monroe sings that iconic happy birthday, um, you know, to JFK. And so he kind of, you know, Bill Asher sort of told the story sort of years later where, um, they were preparing to do the first. Hello, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> She's heard a car driving up. Um, that's all right, Lucy. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, and Bill Asher you know, so, sort of tells his story many years later where um, they were preparing to do the first table read for Bewitched um, when he heard the news that, that, that President Kennedy had mm. been assassinated. So, um, you know, um, yeah, certainly just a bit of a bit of a relation to what we've spoken mm. about, um, you know, previously. And I guess to, you know, to sort of put in context what was going on at the time, of course, we're talking a lot about the Beach Party films here now. Um, but at the same time, of course, this was early in your contract with Dr Pepper, um, you know, in, of course, late 63, 64 was when you were sort of starting to film the Beach, the beach movies. But this sort of coincided really with you... Um, you know your your first year or so uh, with with Dr Pepper and how that your campaign was already starting to show um, you know particular promise um, and they were quite pleased with that and you you tell this story um, about going to one of the board meetings in in Dallas and that must have been quite a 
quite an experience to sort of sit at this, uh, you know, table with these these Amazing. executives. You know, walking into a board mm. meeting early in the morning and, um, you know, mm. it seemed like they, they would start their meetings with a prayer. And, um, and then here mm. comes a, a teenager but dressed like, you know, yeah. hat, gloves, suit, the whole, you know, <laughs> the whole little business lady costume um, into their mm. board meeting at, you know, 7 a.m. or, you know, some hour like that. And, um, and they wanted me to, you know, to entertain them. And uh, I would yeah, say the average yeah. age, you know, was collectively probably 12 men seated around a, you know, a boardroom table, uh, usually a Southern gentleman. And, um, yes, and he, yes. here, here comes little old me. And I would say collectively, <laughs> they had to be over a thousand years old, you know, and, um, <laughs> And but they were very respectful and uh, kind of made me feel even a little equal to them, you know. Whereas I could, mm, I could, mm. uh, you know, talk talk to them. You know, I don't recall Maury being in that, but he must have been in that room. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? That would be interesting. I if he don't wasn't. recall because there are no photographs of me in that room. So who knows? I may yeah. have just yeah. again had that that. Uh, separation you know of of okay it's now you're on and so uh but mm. but uh, mm. there was a f strange feeling where i was introduced to everyone and um you know and knew them all by name and i could i could even i mean mm. i felt like telling them you know calling them by uh, mister and, and addressing them in yes, a more formal way but but um, there yeah. were a, a few of them that actually became very friendly, and I would speak to them and by their first name. Who were they? Exactly. People like I guess Harry, Harry Ellison and Joe, Joe Hughes, yeah, yeah. and Foots mm. before mm. he became CEO. I used to call him Foots. So it was Mr. Mr. Parker. Mr. Parker, yes, and we've spoken about Mr. Parker before, of course, when when you were in Dallas and he was he was the executive who rings you on the telephone as you're preparing to be introduced mm -hmm. uh, downstairs in the ballroom when when mm -hmm. President Kennedy is shot. So he was Mr. definitely Parker. a Mr. And John Parker. Simmons was always John. <laughs> yep, yep, and he was around quite quite a bit in in those sort of days. But what's interesting is I know we we have a, um, a sort of a letter that you found from Harry Ellis that was sort of wedged, um, you know, between uh, a Dr. Pepper retrospective book that you were you were given in the 80s, um, Dr. Pepper King of the Beverages, which was written by uh, Harry Ellis. And I actually sort of picked that up, um, you know, many years ago when we were researching, but I picked it up recently again. And sort of I think what comes across when you read the chapters that particularly involve sort of your time with Dr. Pepper is how central you were to their campaign at the time, not only to sort of increase that sort of youth market, but to really go on to the national, um, you know, the national stage in, in terms of what they were looking for. So how central you were to becoming that, that national face as Dr. Pepper was trying to increase their national presence and sort of, you know, around that time, um, from what I understand, what sort of helped them to be able to increase the national uh, presence is typically uh, at the time a, a bottler couldn't, um, I guess, bottle competing cola drinks. So many of the bottlers would have been Coke or Pepsi, um, 
you know, bottlers. And so they couldn't, they weren't allowed to take on uh, competing uh, cola drinks. And um, what happened around that time was that there was actually a, um, a challenge that Coca-Cola took a, a, um, a, a, bot- a bottler to, to court saying that they sh- shouldn't be allowed to bottle Dr. Pepper because it was a competing cola flavour. Um, and the, uh, the Dallas judge, Sarah T. Hughes, ruled that Dr. <laughs> Pepper was not a cola. So that then, <laughs> which of course That's you know. Not because a cola the or a root beer. Is, <laughs> yeah. So after that, the bottlers could, could be bottling both and that kind of gave the national stage. But what really sort of happened is how central you were to that campaign to really put Dr. Pepper on that national stage. So I'm not surprised when you're in this business meeting with these executives, sort of how welcoming they were, because, you know, you were representing the face of the company Isn't that crazy? and profits. Seriously. I mean, it, yeah. what a dichotomy, you know, walking into a room with, with these men. And I remember everyone wearing brown suits, you know, brown <laughs> and, suits. and some of mm. them cowboy hats. <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, you're in Dallas, wow. and yeah. and some of them smoking of cigars. You know, and um, mm-hmm. but but the, the the idea that they um, welcomed me in and uh, treated me the way they did that with with much reverence, really. Mm. Um, although yeah. you know there was a job to be done, and so they, I guess, they knew that I would I would do that, and. Uh, until until I decided to retire, you know. <laughs> and Harry Ellis writes in the book, you know, with your retirement that, um, you know, she had won thousands of friends for Dr. Pepper in her five-year period with the company. But I want to talk a little bit about something else that I think comes up um, now in this in this chapter reading, but also in the future um, in some of your touring, because um, of course, Dr. Pepper sponsored the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars tours, um, which we're going to talk about in a subsequent um, episode. Um, but as, as well as, of course, you know, Dick Clark's American Bandstand and, and so on. But what we what what sort of comes up during your time um, in this in this uh, at the Dallas headquarters, as well as uh, when you are doing the Caravan of Stars is this racial segregation mm. of the South of that time and, and where you're just really shocked mm. at going to the washrooms and, and seeing the, the segregated signs. That, that must have been quite a lot for someone, you know, a teenager to kind of be exposed to, particularly given, as you said, you, you'd largely grown up in Southern California and, and while you weren't immune to that, that kind of, um, you know, coming across the, the sorts of ways that Jewish people, for example, were, were described and so on, it was a, it was mm. a very different oh, experience yes, for you. Yeah, it it was very mm. very um, disturbing, and um, mm. you know you know me, I I really do see the human race and all life on planet Earth as we are all mm. one, um, and maybe mm. I wasn't able to express it verbally that way, but that's just that's just how I've mm. always felt and always believed. And um, yeah, to to actually, the drinking fountains were delineated as well, and it was all down a hallway. So you know, the row of doors, Mm. the doors that you know discriminated 
colored colored men and then then the white men and colored women mm. and white women and and then colored drinking fountain and white drinking fountain yeah and even that word colored i mean it's just it's just just horrendous really like be, the white that, that was you know that, that was the uh, mid yeah. to late 60s that's what prevailed in the south yeah. and then i you know i when I was walking on uh, the sidewalk in Dallas, I recall uh, mm. a black, um, you know, African American person walking toward me, and the closer they got, they stepped off the curb, you know, to let me to let yeah. me and yeah. I guess my dad pass. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was that's mm. that was the way of life down down there. And in in a yeah. And in a lot of ways that you talk about, um, and, and not, not necessary in this context, but as the Dr. Pepper girl, you know, you came across a lot of different people and all walks of life and whether socioeconomic as, as well and, and so on. But you kind of had this role or, or this role almost, I guess, as, you know, kind of a, an ambassador for the company, of course, but also someone who, you know, connected with people as, as, part, of, uh, as part of that role. <sighs> Uh, yes, I mean, I, I took on that persona um, mm. for a variety of mm. reasons, you know, number one responsibility, but, yeah. you know, left to my own devices, of course, mm. you know, I, I just loved looking at, you know, in the eyes of anyone that uh, I was confronted mm. with, or just passing on the street, you know, you just... Um, just mm. actually, even if it's just a momentary exchange, it's, it can be meaningful. And, um, and it just always felt that yeah. way to me. Yeah. So, you know, as, as a, um, mm. company, uh, it was, it was just an American company at the time. Now it's international, but, um, it, it, it just, it of was, course. uh, it was yeah. a sense of responsibility, but, but my nature you know, kind of fell into place in that way too. It wasn't an effort for me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That was kind of the way that you approached people, regardless of the position you were in. Um, and and so that, that became, you know, that was part of the job, but that was part of who you were. Yeah, and I would say that, you know, any public person that has that kind of personality uh, is the same way. I mean, you know, I... I I, I'm not going to say names, but there, there are very high profile people that can just walk down the street mm. and not be intimidated by someone recognizing them. You know, um, there's just a smile and a, and a fair exchange. And, um, and it's just part of life. It's almost, almost like a little smile goes a long way. And when, when they're recognized, you know, when someone's mm. recognized, um, it, suddenly they're there's they're not a stranger anymore you know they're they're just like a, a part of part of uh, your citizenship or you know part of part mm. of your your big global family you know it's, um i i once i once passed uh, <laughs> dr cornell west you know harvard professor in an airport oh, and yeah. Yeah. you know i just yeah. kind of gave him the high five and um he connected with me and <laughs> that great. big smile of his and you know he high-fived me mm. back and you know it ah. i think it just 
it's part of a part of a person's nature it doesn't matter who they are if if they're if they're a friendly good person who knows you know it would be be nice if the all the leaders yeah. of our of our different countries had that same kind of personality absolutely absolutely particularly in these yes. times all over the world um i think that would be very um effective uh, yes shall we say and just to uh because i think we've covered a lot of ground today obviously we've we've covered uh, the beach films we've we've covered your first of year with dr pepper and particularly this idea of the national stage as that goes on and will become more apparent um you know in our subsequent episodes where we talk about the caravan of stars as well as as well as shindig um but in the reading, and we have spoken about this before in a previous episode because it came up, but you did have this very um, exciting experience when you were filming the calendars, uh, the first, the first um, calendar scenes for the first Dr Pepper um, calendar, and you were mm-hmm. treated to a night out um, accompanied by your father yes. and, and was... John Simmons from Dr Pepper to see the yes, one that was by well, John Simmons was the one of the VPs of the company, and uh, he met us in New York. And mm. uh, the filming of the calendar was really a very positive experience. Although the portrait photographer um, used, a, a, I think mm. it's what I mean. What is it called? A Hasselblad, I think. I knew that because my my dad was a photographer. Right. My adopted dad was a photographer. And this Hasselblad, you know, it's it's like when you see a photographer um, take the black cloth and duck his head under it, and then he's Mm. got a big Mm. slide Mm. to slide into the camera. And so for every shot, I had to hold my breath 15 seconds. You know, it was in the, (laughs) I guess, in the early days of, of that type of photography. I love that. Yeah, the well, not to for breathing, just they say. Hold, hold that pose, <laughs> not, you know. Not for so, seconds. Um, but yes, in the last <laughs> scene of that one, uh, I was wearing a prom dress, and um, and I had my yes. you know yeah. opera length gloves and and a, a wrap that that uh, I asked my my parents for to go out in the evening fox white fox wrap and. Um, and and yeah, uh, yeah. so I walked off the set of the the last shoot, and on to Broadway, and was treated to front row center seats mm. at Funny Girl, where I had my first experience watching Barbara Streisand perform and doing you know doing singing people, mm. and um, mm. and Omar mm. Sharif you know was her co star. What a night, I imagine, and particularly, you know, getting to wear, um, you know, your your gown, um, you know, from the prom scene and, and going on to Broadway. It's a it's a it's a pretty uh, and it was uh, ironic, so ironic I because I had heard uh, the song "People" before on the radio, but I really wasn't that familiar mm. with Barbara Streisand mm. um, and her look and everything at that moment, and. Um, and here I mm. had just previously gone through having my um, my cosmetic surgery to change my nose and uh, was told that I had to look a yeah. certain way. Yeah. And then, of course, that proved to be, you know, mm. productive for my career. And here I am sitting front row center having a bird's yeah. eye view yeah. of this woman who was, I'm, I don't recall, maybe she's four or five years older than me, but, you know, 
with her with her mm. features you know her, that i was totally criticized and and kind of um, defamed for and um and here she is with this gorgeous voice mm. and you know just everything everything that it seemed like she could accept herself for exactly the way she was and no one no one could either tell her to change yeah. or no one asked her to change and and i it was so it was ironic yeah. for me yeah. as much as i enjoyed it i sat there you know ha- part of my experience was mm-hmm. like you know why did i have to go through that but maybe i you know that's my experience but look at you know and i wasn't like um competing or comparing i was just just seeing how no. the, the lack of acceptance on in my life and the it seemingly total acceptance in hers and that's the, that's i think something that we i know we talk a lot about in uh in this podcast and and we'll continue to sort of do so but that that idea of that i guess the sense of lack um that you felt at that time because of um you know, both uh, consciously or, or unconsciously, the kinds of messages that were being um, sort of relayed to you, you know, starting with the family and, and, and sort of radiating out in, in, terms of, in, in terms of what was what was an acceptable look or what was acceptable actions and so on. And so, um, you know, and then, of course, that uh, had effects I, on Obviously, you it, whomever you are and whatever your life turns out to be, you know, it, the optimal experience for life is to accept yourself for exactly the way you are. And, you know, mm. and that, that mm. the people that are primary in your life support that. And um, when it's not the case, it's, it's, uh, it's quite, it's quite compromising and, um, and it's, and it's quite damaging. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground um, <laughs> today, as always. But particularly, there was a there was an interview, um, an interview that was particularly uh, I I um, really found fascinating to listen to uh, that you conducted, which was, of course, with Lana Dale, Dick Dale's uh, widow, and and I'm, I know that you really appreciate that she took that yes, time to speak so openly and candidly to you. I really do uh, want to express my heartfelt appreciation for Lana telling you know sharing her heart with me as well as all the listeners and with you adam and um it just shows how dedicated Mm -hmm. and how devoted she is and what we may you know look forward to in the future once once she you know gets over this initial grief period and 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 is able to put down her beautiful story about her her love uh, a love of her husband mm. and who he was the legend of the surf rock guitar that that would be something that we really could look forward to it'd be tremendous to hear that from her um given all they went through and as you said how devoted she was to him um and certainly Maybe, maybe a place to end for us is to tell our listeners a little bit about what we, what, uh, what they can expect. Um, that you've been busy out speaking, uh, speaking to two people. Um, we have, we have one interview coming up uh, pretty soon. I'm not sure if you want to reveal who that is, or should we leave that 
Uh, well, I can leave that I can say that um, we are going who, to celebrate to. someone very special's birthday, and um, and the key word is bikini. Mm-hmm. There you go. Given we've been speaking about bikinis, I think this is a very um, a a a good little clue um, for us. So. Thank you, as always, for sharing your memories. I know, um, I think particularly a lot of people will get some, some sort of uh, a lot out of this episode because we do talk, of course, about some, some movies that, um, you know, people just absolutely love and to give them those sort of behind-the-scenes um, stories, which, which I know so many people seek out. Um, so thank you for that. But as well as, as always, you know, t- talking about what was sort of going on behind the scenes and 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 some of those experiences it's always a pleasure dr um, adam until next time